Welcome to the Fire Inside podcast, a weekly show about the astonishing true stories of hidden heroes, everyday people like you and me, who persevered to overcome extraordinary challenges. I'm your host, Sarada. In today's episode of the Fire Inside, we go to Cleveland, Ohio, to talk to Belinda Miner, who is an activist, pastor, and humanitarian. Above all, she's a mother of two whose eldest daughter was tragically murdered at the young age of 18. You might think that natural instinct is to take revenge, but Belinda did the exact opposite. She forgave the man who kidnapped, raped, murdered, and dismembered her child. How is it possible for her to show such compassion towards someone who showed a blatant lack of humanity for her, her family, and countless others. Let's talk to Belinda and find out how she was able to move forward after facing the unspeakable pain of losing her daughter. But before we begin, I want you to know that this episode has some very adult themes and graphic descriptions. So proceed cautiously. You're listening to The Fire Inside. Hi, Belinda. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I love that response. (laughs) Well, anytime I'm talking to you, it's fantastic. Hey, man. (laughs) I feel the same way. (laughs) This is such an honor and a full circle moment for me because Mm. your story helped propel me past, you know, some of my hurdles uh, and also inspired me to create this podcast so that we can do this for other people. Wow, that's powerful. I'm excited about everything that you're doing. And I'm just honored to be a part of it and humbled at the same time. We met a few years ago when I was working on a show where we featured your daughter's story. So let's get right into that. Tell me about the day that you found out that your daughter was murdered. The day that I found out that my daughter was murdered, I remember driving to the police department And I remember the detective called me back and she changed her mind and she said, no, never mind. We're going to just come over to your house. And I said, "Okay." And so I remember calling her dad and telling him that, you know, they said to meet over at my house. And I remember the entire family coming. I remember people from the park that we were we were on 144th and St. Clair. There were people standing here that I'd never seen before that had made it over to my house and when they walked in, and I remember all these people coming in from the detective, from the police station, and there were two other women there and some other people that my family had came in the house. And I remember just standing there looking at the detective. And she was standing behind somebody, trying not to make eye contact with me. And I remember the officer telling, the chief telling me that the other person found was my daughter. Sarita, I just remember falling to the floor, falling to the floor in my dining room because I just was floored at the time. I couldn't believe that it was my baby that they found. You know, I had hoped that it was not her, that she was still, you know, here, that she was still alive. Tell me a little bit about your daughter. 
So Sherelda was a beautiful young lady. Sherelda was a avid reader. She was a Christian. She praised dance. I could rely on her for everything. She tutored and mentored students that were struggling with their education. She would meet students as well as, you know, older people at the East Cleveland Public Library. And she would tutor them in whatever area they needed help in. She was just that kind of person. She was very kind hearted and she was a hugger. You know, we called her Hugzilla and her grandmother called her Hug a lot. So how old was she at the time that this happened? She was 18 at the time that this all happened, which is why it was so difficult getting the police involved at first, because they said she's 18. She could technically do what she wants to do. She can go to Las Vegas if she wants to. And I said, no, that's not my daughter. You know, she's very dependable. She's dependable and she's like clockwork. If she says she's going to be somewhere, she's there like she'll meet you there like a few minutes before your schedule. And how long was it from the time that she went missing to the time that she was found? Um, I want to say it was a few weeks. And would you say that was one of your biggest hurdles was trying to direct the search to start at a certain place based on where you thought she might be or what you thought might have happened? The hardest hurdle, honestly, was dealing with the police. It was dealing with the community at the same time. It was so many different hurdles that we had to overcome because we've never dealt with this type of thing before. It was trying to stay positive in a place and trying to keep the focus on her and not necessarily on the hurt that I felt, on the absence that I felt as a mother, on the place where you're wondering, like, where is she? What is she eating? Like, I'm caught, you know, and at the time, like I said, she didn't have a cell phone. She had like an iPod that she could use as a phone through the Internet. And so we were calling that and that kind of thing and no answer, sending texts and looking at her Facebook page. There was no activity there. The whole thing was the hardest part, honestly. The whole ordeal was difficult because I just felt like I didn't really know who to trust at that time. We were all packed up a week before we were scheduled to move. This is when she came up missing and she didn't come home. And I mean, it it was just difficult because I didn't know whether to stay here and wait or whether to move. And our church members came over and they ended up packing up the rest of our things and moving us so that I could stay out searching and that kind of thing for her. Did you ever feel like, but what if she comes back to that house? That is exactly. I, I felt that way. She knew where we were, you know, going to move to. And it was difficult to make the decision to move on because as a mom, I wanted to just, you know, stand right there and just be waiting for her when she was going to arrive home. I mean, I took off work because I was waiting for my daughter to come home, you know, waiting on some answers from someone or some good news to happen. I had hoped. And when you said you felt like you couldn't trust anybody. I meant new people. The new people that were coming, you know, the police, uh, new people that were coming to be involved. When you have had someone, something taken from you, it's difficult to feel secure in the space that you're standing in. Because, again, I'm, I don't feel that I can trust anybody because I have to argue with the police about a picture that my daughter is on. Mm-hmm. One of the photos displays my daughter where she looks innocent. The other one where she has on makeup. The police felt like she was living a double lifestyle. 
So therefore, they were talking to me about her pulling the wool over my eye. I was looking forward to being able to trust the police, but yet I have to argue with them about why the photo looks the way it does. Let me just be clear here. My oldest daughter was in school for cosmetology. She decided that she wanted to use my youngest daughter as a model to make her face up and all that kind of stuff. And so then they posted that on Facebook. And then it became a big ordeal when my daughter came up missing. You know what I mean? And so something that started out innocent or whatever was just taken way out of context. Way out of context. And so just to be told certain things. And then, you know, there was another place where I went to the police station after I got through with talking to them about the picture and all that. And then we settled and then they put their picture that they wanted. And then they put the ones I wanted on their flyer. I have to listen to them saying how they're looking for her to be deceased. And then I have a police woman to kind of call me to the side so that she can have a side conversation with me. And she says, you know, maybe your daughter is pregnant. Like, why don't you just say you're sorry? Mm. So this is why I didn't trust, because the people who I put my trust in, the ones that you think that you can trust, are the ones saying the most negative stuff not positive. And I understand that they have a job to do. But for me as a mother who's searching, I didn't feel comforted at that time. And that's a time when, you know, you're probably in immediate panic, I'm assuming, the moment you find Mm -hmm. out that your daughter's not where she's supposed to be. So then you run Mm -hmm. for help. And then when that happens, that's when, based on the experience you're having, you're faced with no choice but to lose trust in the people you're talking to because you're not getting the response that you need, which is, hold on, let me go find her. (laughs) That's all you need to hear. You know, her father, Van, went to the police station. At first, they didn't listen. They were saying how, you know, she could do whatever she wanted to do. She's an adult, basically. And I'm like, I understand what you're saying age-wise, but she still lives at home. And yeah, she may be that, but she's still very much mine. And I get it. But it was just a difficult piece and a difficult process to have to swallow. I don't think there's a parent uh, in the world listening to this right now that doesn't agree that 18 is just a number, but your baby is still your baby. Still your baby. Right. What was the moment when you realized she was missing? The moment I realized that she was missing, I was at work and my um, daughter called me and she said that Sherelle is not home yet. And I'm like, what? She's not home. So I'm like, call her dad and see that she go over there. You know, call her teacher because she called her teacher mom also. And when she called me back and she said, she's still not here. That's when I knew something was wrong. Had she ever done that before? Never. Yeah, never. Wednesday was Bible study and Sherelda was always home to make it to go to Bible study. And we knew that if she was not home for Bible study, something definitely was wrong. Mm hmm. So who was your first phone call after you received that call from Brittany? I was at work at the time when Brittany called to tell me. And so Brittany called her father and her teacher, her grandparents. It rained cats and dogs that day. And it's a rain that I'll never forget. I had to get a ride home because my car was being repaired. So the first person I called for that would have been my assistant pastors at the time. You know, they were the ones that came to drive me home. Mm -hmm. And after I got home, I know my husband was trying to shield me from a lot. I was just, you know, I don't really know where I was at that time. I just understand that 
I felt grief go through my body. It was an experience that um, you never forget. I didn't really know what to do exactly. I didn't know how to feel. I was trying to gather myself to figure out what was I getting ready to do. Right. We were hoping that she was with somebody that was family that she just hadn't called and said anything. Absolutely. I mean, there's no rule book for this, first of all. And even if there is a million parents, unfortunately, that have gone through this, they probably all at some point thought the same thing (laughs) of, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. Because obviously your body's feeling one thing, your mind's feeling something else, your emotions are feeling something else, and everything's not where it's supposed to be because your daughter's not where she's supposed to be. When I say that, even when I'm telling my job, like, you know, I'm going to be off because I need to find my daughter. That was a challenge there also. Tell me about that. When a week went past, I remember going and they were calling, asking me, could I come in? And and I'm like, sir, you know that this is made national news. Like, this is not just something that I'm making up. You can see also on the local news that we're out here searching for my daughter. And you just try to be loving. Even though... You are going through, you just try to be loving to other people where you try not to be rude because you are going through one of the most difficult times where it's difficult to lose a daughter. And it's difficult to have had to, I mean, like to have to speak on the news and to have to speak to all these people viewing. I didn't know them. And like I said, I thank God for my mother-in-law. You know, I still call her my mother-in-law because with her, she never loses her title and you never lose your position as her daughter. You know, Rosie, which is Van's mother. Mm -hmm. She's just so amazing. Like I said, when I say that she called me and she was just like, when everything happened, she said, what do you need? You know, she was, she was getting her clothes on when she found out Sherilda didn't come home. She was up getting her clothes on that morning, going to get flyers made as as quickly as she could. My mother came together. It's like my entire family came to help. That's love. That's family. That's exactly what you'd hope best case scenario would be, was that everyone would pull together to help you find your daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it just was a difficult thing because... Oh, yeah, it, it was just just really difficult. I don't even know if there's any words to follow because. When they found her, I didn't know they were found. They would find two other women that this man had murdered. Tell me about that. Tell me what you know about like these other like what were the circumstances surrounding that? I don't remember the circumstances. I just remember sitting on my porch and I remember getting a phone call from somebody in the community saying that they found a body down near the East Cleveland Cable Company that's in Cleveland. I see. And I remember they said they found a body. You need to come down here and see, is it your daughter? And I remember the detective that I worked with, like she and I developed such a close relationship and she was just an amazing woman. Before I got up to go down here to look at all of this and everything, I called her and I said, someone is asking me to come and, you know, view a body. And I just was wondering if you knew anything about this or what's going on. And she said, Belinda, I want you to sit down and I do not want you to go and look at any of that. I'm going to go for you and I'm going to call you back and don't move until you hear from me. When we were going to meet at the police department and then the detective, she said, Belinda, 
you know, just just go home, just go home. And like she was trying to keep the conversation short. Because if she said more than I was going to know, you know what I mean? And I remember how the detective said, go back home. We're going to all just come over there. When she came through the door and she immediately started walking behind somebody and I couldn't find her eyes because if I saw her eyes and she looked at me, I would have known that would have, that was going to be it. I knew I would have known then. You would have known when she didn't make eye contact with you. What was your gut saying? It was saying I knew, I knew it was her. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking. And as I said, I just hit the floor because I couldn't believe the news that I was hearing that this was my baby. I will not ever forget that day. Well, one, no, I don't I don't know how you could ever forget that. But if anything, I would think it would be the contrary that you're replaying it over and over and over. Yeah. So Sherelda's father, Van, where is he today? Van passed away. Okay. With all that support, you know, as helpful as it is, did you have moments where you felt alone? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that I I did have moments that that were like that, even though, you know, like I said, Brittany, my oldest daughter, and Derek, my husband, were just like very there and very supportive. There were times that I did feel alone, but because of you know, me being a mom, I was more concerned about my daughter than myself. Sure. Because while I love Sherelda, she spent every day with Sherelda. You know, so I needed to watch out for her. Right. And when we learned about all of this, Sarita, even though I had moments, I could not let myself go because I still have Brittany. You know, my kids are my everything. Right. And we learn to grieve together. Um, you know, my pastoral care training came in where it was helpful to me and my family at the time, where we had to rely on and using those skills and, you know, just coming together as family. But, you know, Belinda, that is so exceptional. Like the way that your heart and your soul speaks about that is you, you talk about it like it's so natural, but... I know that there's people out there, and I know that there's times I've experienced this where you go through something that is shocking and traumatic or you know all the words that don't actually you know define the emotions, right? Yeah. and you're sometimes your instinct is just to retreat that like people just yeah. there's a hole inside of you, right? And it's like people can't fill that no matter how much they want to. They might try, but you just you can't. Nothing you do can can bring yourself to be there for yourself, let alone for anyone else around but you. But let me just say this to you, though. For my daughter to have lost her best friend, I didn't want to lose two daughters. Right. And so it's just something that's in there that causes you to fight. You know what I mean? It's like there are things that we go, you know, and I've had my own battles and stuff with different things. And I remember, as I said, I I remember when I got raped in my house and I wanted to retreat then. Right. But again, my daughter is looking at me. My daughters are right there. 
It's like it causes you to fight in a way that you just didn't believe that you had. You know, I needed to tap into my faith. I prayed really hard and I really prayed and asked God for something. And it was his strength because my strength was going to collapse. This is the part of your story where out of all the superhuman things I've already heard and experienced, this part of your story still has my jaw to the ground to this day. So can you take me through the moment when you mentioned you were raped? How old were your daughters at the time? How long ago was oh that? Oh my God, girl, let me say this to you. My, Brittany was just three years old and Sherelda was just a baby in my arms, still being nursed. You know, she was just a baby. And I was laying in my front room. And at the time, I lived in East Cleveland. And I was laying in my front room, and I was remember I was so tired. And I remember laying on my couch, and Gerelda was laying with me. My um, Brittany was in her room sleeping, and um, Van was out somewhere. He was somewhere, and that's a whole nother podcast story right there, okay? But, <laughs> amen. <laughs> out and I remember laying on my couch and I remember waking up and I remember getting up and getting ready to you know take Sherelda in the room with me so that we can lay in the bed because it was like you know on the couch you just fall asleep and it's comfortable while you sleep but then when you wake up you're like oh yeah let me go get in the bed sure Sarah as I was walking in my bedroom I saw something move out of the corner of my eye it was a person and before I could look to really see, because it, it was blurry, you know, I'd have my glasses on. The person took a piece of a towel or, or something that was on my floor, picked it up and threw it over, threw it at me and said, don't look at me. Put this on. Put this on. Cover your face. Yeah, cover your face. Basically so that I couldn't see them. So I'm just standing here holding my daughter in my arms. and. As I'm holding my daughter in my arms, he said, take off your clothes. And I just was like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. And he and then I just started getting frantic. And I remember as I started getting frantic, he started. And so I kind of remember calming back down. And he said, I said, you know, take off your clothes. And and then he said, go get that baby a bottle. Now, I couldn't get the bottle because she was nursed. Okay, and I had a refrigerator out in the hallway, but I was so worried about Brittany in her bedroom, and I didn't want this assailant or this person to do something to my daughter. And I remember me taking off my clothes, and I just felt so humiliated at the same time that I literally held my daughter in my arms while I was being violated by this person. They basically told me that I had a choice of I could go ahead and die by a gun or a knife, you know, and I could literally see up under this, you know, rag or thing that I had over my face. And it was just so humiliating just standing here talking to somebody. And I was trying to keep this person talking because as long as I can keep him talking, his mind isn't thinking something or thinking or whatever it is going to be happening. It was just a horrific experience for me. And I remember asking that 
after this whole thing is over, can you get out? Can you leave? I'm being violated on a pile of clothes that's laying on my floor by someone I have no idea who this is. And after this whole thing was up, he tells me to get up, go into the bathroom. Do I have any vinegar? You know, wash up with that, wipe, wash out with that and give him the rag and all this other kind of stuff. And I remember just saying, like, you know, you said you were going to leave and I'm still holding my baby in my arms because at this point I'm not letting her go. And I remember just keep asking him, are you, you said you were going to leave. You said you were going to leave after this whole thing was over. You said you were going to leave. It was just like he, he was acting like he wasn't trying to go, Sarita. And I mean, I remember after this whole thing was over, him telling me to cover my face back up and come out of the bathroom, go sit back on the couch and count backwards. And remember, that if I report this to the police, it's more of them than it is of us or something, he said, or more of the gang members or more of the people he knew that was, you know, more than the police that they had or whatever. It was just a horrific experience. And as I said, that that shaped the way I felt about things. And how's that? As a mother, you do everything to protect your own. I would rather for them to kill me or do something harmful to me than to hurt my children. There's anyone that's listening to this at this point still hasn't picked up their jaw from the ground. I'm sure of that because it's beyond superhuman strength. I mean, it's the ultimate degree when you think about how strong a woman can be in a moment to be continuing to give life to, you know, your child as a big part of yours is being taken from you by a stranger. Most people don't know that when I was in court for Sherelda's case, getting that settled, And then I got my own case from when I was raped in my home. That was resolved at the same time. And I actually got to see the person who raped me in my house that day. And I actually got to let him know that I forgave him. I've moved on with my life, but I wanted to just come back to see who had the audacity to come in and shake the foundation of my life. Who had the audacity, but also like, what is it like to look at someone that carries that depth of evil and like I can't fathom how he could proceed to violate you while there's a baby in your arms. I just like that that's not human. Yes, it's not, but let me say this. There were several letters that were read by women that who could not come down to the court to face him. He had went and just raped so many women. And he traumatized them as well. They were unable to come down to the court. I was the only person there standing. The other women sent letters on their behalf. But let me tell you how he came into the room. He came into the room reading scripture. What? And he came into the room reading scripture. And I know that, you know, God loved him just like he loves me. And I'm okay with that now. But the part for me was, when they let me speak and I talked about how the word says that you are to love your neighbor like you love yourself. And I told him that for him to come in and use the word was something because, you know, I said, you must have missed the part where it says to love your neighbor as yourself. And while I've forgiven you and I've moved on with my life, it drastically changed. But you don't love your neighbor and then you rape them. Right. 
and then you caused them grief and you caused them all of this stuff. And from the letters that were written and then from uh, the newspaper, because I I never knew who who did this to me when Ohio had had all those rape kits and they were bringing them back and that kind of thing. And I had to come and look through a book and see if I could recognize anyone. Well, I never knew even what this man looked like. Hmm. And so I, I couldn't identify him. And then the chief showed me, based on DNA evidence, which one it was. Let me go back to the court when he comes in with these scriptures. Okay, I had to take, you know, AIDS tests and all that kind of stuff for years to make sure I didn't have anything and all this kind of stuff. And then I'm the one that had to get that rape kit test. I understand why people don't report rape, because when you have to go to the hospital, that whole kit right there is something else to have to have people swabbing your mouth and all of this other kind of stuff. And at that time, you know, they had the rape crisis center. Fast forwarding to when I'm speaking to this young man, all of that now was behind me, but it was still a time where that was just embarrassing. It was a time where I was afraid. I felt afraid when I went outside because I didn't know what this person looked like. And I felt like they knew what I looked like. One of the things that you talked about that inspired me the most back in 2019 is when you talked about um, forgiveness and, mm. you know, uh, where it came from. And I remember saying, how? How did you How did you do this? And how do you know? And you said, well, you really know if you forgave someone based on the way that you feel when you're around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. So how did you feel the last time that you were around when you were in that situation, the moment that you knew that you had forgiven both of these men that had taken something so huge from you, since you had to face them both in court at the same time? Um, for Michael Madison, I was just ready to be done with him because for us to sit there in the courts every day, like we were there for, I want to say six weeks, because it was like a couple of weeks for each case, for each woman he murdered and the families that sat there. I was just ready to be done. It was stressful coming to the court every day. It was stressful with the pictures that they have, the ones that they you can't, they don't want you looking at. It was stressful to not be able to cry before the jury, even though you felt like you wanted to. You know what I mean? If you just felt like tears, sometimes it's hard to hold back tears that are ready to flow. But then you can't hold influence the jury with your tears and all this other stuff. And I mean, sitting there looking at him play with iPads and all that kind of stuff, for him, it was not serious. It was not a serious nature. For me, I was just ready to be out of his presence and just done and ready to move on with my life. I didn't care if he got the death penalty, if he was going to be in jail. I just knew that I didn't want him harming anybody else's family members. Right. I didn't really feel one way or the other towards him because my mental health, my mindset and me was ready to be just done. Right. You know, and as I said, I, you know, uh, I have a part of me that had to keep my mind focused. And I, you know, I'm a person that I'm very creative. I needed to utilize art to keep my mind focused while I sat there. And so for me, I didn't really focus on him more so than the case, more than the family, other family members that came. Um, the, the woman that was dating him at the time that the women were murdered and all that kind of stuff, I actually got to speak to her and I actually got to minister to her. And the thing that I told her, like, I know that there were things that she knew and things that they negotiated saying and that kind of thing. To me, it was her confidence in her. 
And I just simply, you know, told her that, you know, I got to hug her. And I just told her that, you know, you need to really go find out who you are in God. You need to find out what your, what is your identity? Like, who are you apart from a man? Right. When you get that, you can do something. You can really work with who you are. And is that the same way that you felt around the other person, too? That's how you knew that you had forgiven? The other person I had already forgiven years ago, and I was calm, but just thought he had a lot of nerve showing up reading scriptures and all this stuff like that was supposed to be the, you know, be all. I mean, I I told him, I said, I just told him, I said, first of all, I'm a different woman today. I said, you know, I didn't have a relationship with the Lord when we, you know, when you came into my house and, and violated me and that kind of thing. I said, but today I stand before you as a woman of clergy and a woman of God and a person, not just of a religious, uh, you know, nature, but a person who has a relationship with God. And so I just have a whole different feeling about this thing. Like, I'm okay with scripture, but don't come out here using, you know what I'm saying, love and remember that God is love because you didn't remember that part when you hurt all these people. And while I can be forgiving, but, you know, you loving your neighbor as yourself was this where I was stuck at. Right. Well, to do what he did, there's a certain level of evil in him. I mean, a great level of evil in him that whatever he's saying at that point is just sheer manipulation. It's not really how he feels or anything. It's just a matter yeah, of... Yeah, I got you. Right? So, like, um, right. I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that they necessarily, you know, have remorse, either one of them, for what they had done or the way the number of lives that they've affected. But that's not that's neither here nor there, honestly, because, you know, the the most inspirational part of this entire thing is that you were able to uh, not only forgive them, but then be here today and talk to us about all the ways in which, you know, you were able like and talk to us about how you were able to do that, you know, and what that means to you and what that means to your growth, what that means to everyone else in your family, everyone else in your life, you know, um, even me and the ways in which I've learned at that time when you said that, I remember thinking, wait a minute, let me go back to, you know, how I feel when I'm around people that have hurt me or abused me or traumatized me. And that was the first time that I realized that I was saying, oh, I forgive you. I forgive you. I was saying that to myself, that I forgive this person or that person. But I didn't really mean it because when I was around them, I felt nothing but inner turmoil or, you know, I felt like I was being fake on the outside when really on the inside, I just was either scared or angry, you know, and so. And so how has that, how has, how has that changed? you know, your relationship with the, you know, with the ones that you've forgiven? For me, everything is so much lighter and I feel so much more free because I let go. I let go of mm. a lot of the, um, and I did that through accepting the circumstances for what they were. Same thing that you said okay. that you did. Yeah. You accepted yeah. them for what they were. There's a great deal of years and years of asking yeah. why and saying things like, why me? Or what did I do to deserve this? Or how, yeah. you know? All the things you're never going to get the answers to. Yes. And I ask that question because a lot of times, you know how you can have a place of forgiveness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be chubby and buddy buddy with the person. You know what I mean? The forgiveness part exactly. makes it where you have peace and freedom. So I love that you talked about the freedom to be able to just move on. Absolutely. Because then outside of 
accepting the circumstance for what it is and was, you also kind of have to let go of the expectation yes. that it that, that it should be something that you mm-hmm. think it should be or that it will be something that you want it to be. Like you, I think you said that earlier too. And I think having that clear understanding of where you're at and being good with that, it just, it frees up your time, your mind, and your heart to give to yourself and to everyone around you that actually, you know, you want to give it to or that really, really deserve that. That's good. That is so true. I totally agree 100%. You're one of the reasons I got to that growth. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I tell you, it's, it's like I said, life is just hard and sometimes you just need to just hug somebody, right? So true. I felt the exact same way. Belinda, I can only hope that I know what that feels like to have a mother like you because I don't, mm. I'm in awe and I'm overcome with so much appreciation for you and the love that you have for your children. I could just, I could give you story after story for my life, Sarita, but you know, I've just encountered things and I never want my children to have their innocence lost. I can empathize with you because I don't have a good, strong, solid relationship with my mom because of circumstances that happen. For me, I have learned to love my mother for the woman that she is and appreciate her for who she is versus who I want her to be for me. Same. Amen to that. Yep. Same. You know what I mean? And but I, too, when I look at other uh, women and they have like really close, strong relationships with their moms and different things, I just marvel and I'm just, I, I get really excited about those things. And for me as a woman, it's like sometimes you give people what you necessarily didn't have. Because you know what it feels like to not have it. And you never want a person to feel like you felt before. Well, again, that speaks to your spirit and your soul. And the whole reason why I'm so grateful that you're here sharing this. Because, mm. um, again, I, given everything you just said, the time after time of having things taken from you, um, I 100% can relate to that. Having experienced that time after time after time, where do you find the capacity to give that love you're talking about you know it takes a lot to be angry and I spent I spent 30 years of my life being angry for a circumstance that took something else from me I refuse to be handcuffed with Michael Madison in jail when I'm not in prison I refuse to allow my heart to be in a place that I can't come back from again I have a daughter that if I had chose to give up what you think she would have done? True. I'm not going to say that I just forgave him. See, let me just be truthful. It took years for the court case to happen. And in the years that it took for the case to happen, honestly, I had my faith to hold on to the training for that pastoral care. I had time to grieve. I had time to be angry and go through all of the emotions that I needed to go through. That one, he was not getting ready to, you know, for me, he was not getting ready to take up any more of my time, any more of my mindset to be focused on him with his selfish self. And forgiveness freed me up from worrying about him and holding him in captivity. He's already in prison. I'm not getting ready to sit there and he's in prison and be with them two outside. Forgiveness freed me up so that I didn't have to think about him. And I could successfully move on with my life. Forgiveness is more for me than it was for him. I needed to focus my attention back on my family, on my daughter, 
um, I thank God that my husband is, you know, the man that he is and the supporter of our family. I was able to love my daughter. My husband and my daughter had a meeting without me present. And then when, when it was time for me to be present, when I was going to return back to work, you know, they were just like, yeah, we, we don't think that's going to be a good idea because, you know, I worked at a whole different shift where they would be at home solo when they were used to it being three people in the house. And I needed to be here to help heal the hearts of my family as well as my own. We needed to go through the grieving process together. So in all of that and all that time that passed, I had time for God to do a new work within me. It wasn't just something that was like overnight and I just forgave that person. Like stuff like this does take time. Absolutely. And, you know, my training in pastoral care, I understand that. What does the work look like? And the work for everybody looks differently. That's really powerful. That's that's the biggest part of being able to rise from a challenge is to be able to do the work and, and not just do the work, but then to also accept, you know, all the positive support that you have to get through it. Because like you said, it takes time. I I wouldn't think it was genuine and no one, it wouldn't be genuine, actually. I can go out and say that, that like, if you were to just wake up the next day and be like, I forgive you, why? Why does that man, that man doesn't deserve your forgiveness, one. And two, how is that even possible? Like, you you know what I mean? Like, I always say that um, I worked on a missing person series and talked to a lot of parents who recounted like the experience of having their children go missing. And I always say that it's so difficult because we're not, I don't know if this is the right word, but we're not programmed to live in gray areas. It's like we need to know alive or not. We need to know, is it right or wrong? Is it up or down, right? So then we can can adapt because as humans, we're very adaptable, especially someone like you or I who have been through multiple challenges and consistently had to pivot. Yes. Now, Sarah, you know, the prayer that I had was when everything was transpiring, the police were looking and we were out meeting for prayer vigils and all that kind of stuff. And people were coming from all over the place. You know, with some people were hope, some people brought, brought positive energy and some people did not bring that positive. But oh, I'm sure. My own, my own prayer, you know what I'm saying? My own prayer was, God, please reveal her no matter what the circumstance is. Because I know that God says that we can always come to him boldly. For me, I understand that. And I prayed and my prayer definitely was that, you know, I don't know what any other parents go through. I don't know the circumstances of what they had, but I just prayed for, for my circumstance, asking God to just please reveal her because I don't know that I could be one of the parents who didn't know, who doesn't know, like, the police are saying they're not here and they're this and that. And I, I just was not going to be one of the parents. And that was my only prayer that I prayed that I needed to know. Whatever the circumstances are, I just need to understand and have an understanding or know where she's at. Right. But after going through this circumstance, I just said, my husband and I always look at each other and we say, you know, God helped us to endure through this with his strength. There is nothing that we cannot make it and overcome together. That's powerful. Do you ever feel like you're kind of just done? You just don't want to anymore? You don't want to feel... And when I say done, I mean just like fed up. 
Do you ever just feel like fed up? Like why again? Or why like when you face a new challenge? You know, after this circumstance right here, (laughs) after after dealing with this, I am so I have a different level of gratitude. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I have a different level of gratitude because. One thing, you know, you never know how when you pray for something, you never know how it will manifest. Um, I like to look at things from a different perspective. I like to look at things from a perspective of, you know, I pray. One thing I prayed for is I prayed for my entire family to come together. They all came to find out and to come and see about Sherelda. We hadn't all spoken in years. And that bridged the gap to that. And now we all, again, are a family. You know what I mean? We have each other. And for me now, family is one of the most important things, even though I don't get to see everybody as often as I would like to. But and so my whole basis is always, what are you going to do with the pain? Right. You're going to keep holding on to it. It never leaves. And it's always going to be a hole and a void in the heart. You know what I mean? But you can endure and you can still do things. And that's one of the reasons why we make this podcast (laughs) (laughs) is to spread that message that you can do it. You can endure it. You can accept your circumstances the way they are Mm -hmm. and you can step into the purpose. Yeah, because something else is always birthed because of pain. A hundred percent. I mean, I mean, it's just something, you know, it's painful to go through it. It's painful to talk about it, but it's one of the most things that people still reach out about. And Sarita, you have caused me to get up and do some things that I didn't intend on doing. Oh, <laughs> every time I speak to you, you caused me, you caused me to get up and keep fighting, get up and now do the things that you've always wanted to do. Get up and go try something new you've never done before. That is so sweet. Grief can put you in a place where you just exist. Oh, that's so true. And now that Brittany is grown and she's out of the house and she has her own life. And you know what I mean? She still has moments of grief, but she has her cousins and different people that help her through. But she doesn't necessarily need me for certain things now. And so here I am with my life and I had to figure out what what is getting ready to be my new fight because I no longer have to fight for her. Yeah, I mean, your survival for the longest time, a lot of your strength came from being there for her, came from needing to be everything you can be and then more for her. And so, you know, a natural course of life happens where your kids grow up and move on and and move out of the house. And I have plenty of friends going through that. Um, and it's like, you know, re, rebuilding when you're, when you're and you, you know, when your kids leave the house and move on. It's a great feeling. But then you're also like, now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? (laughs) (laughs) So I am so honored and grateful to hear that I have, I can play the tiniest part. Um, Girl, you play a large part. It's not (laughs) tiny. (laughs) As do you and mine. And that's, again, you've inspired this podcast to happen the way that it's happening. And that's largely so that we can share our stories to the masses of how and why we came to the place that we came to and how we're able to go and put one foot in front of another because how you did it, like you said earlier, there is no rule book. There is no right or wrong. It's just what I knew how to do. And I just did it. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable what you've been able to overcome. It's remarkable 
what you've been able to do since then. So tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing today for yourself and more into stepping into your purpose. You know, so the work that I am actually doing is I started Sherelda Helen Terry Foundation. The next project, you know, we work with uh, youth and we provide youth with basically whatever it is that they're in need of. I had a person to contact me in regards to some students that were in between homes and they were attending school and they just wanted simple like uniform clothes. You know, they wanted uniforms, sleeping bags, pillowcases, toothbrush, toothpaste, and just the basic, you know, essentials that we have every day. And we were able to, you know, raise the funds and buy all of the stuff for the students that needed them. And then we were able to also help the teacher because she was supplying all the snacks and different things within the classroom. So, you know, we bought that and got them the things that they were asking for. We volunteered there to read books to the students and that kind of thing. I still do um, projects and things like that with the library um, that my daughter, you know, the East Cleveland Public Library named the teen room after my daughter Sherelda. So uh, we were, we've been active there up until the pandemic. And so I have to get my shoes back on and get back up there and do some more things for the students there. Um, currently I'm working on getting Sherelda's mural done. So that will be the next project that I'm doing. I have a couple of places that I'm looking at. I'm just waiting on a sheer yes of if I can put the mural there. So that is my heart. I would like for that to happen. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I'm working on. And we just continuously give to the community. What's one thing that you want everyone to know about Sherelda? That she wanted to be a social worker. Mm -hmm. Sherelda felt that no child should be without food, water, shelter, or a good education. And so I think that the basis of her foundation is her mission. That is the mission of the foundation Uh. to make sure that that no child is without those things. So we give out scholarships and that kind of thing. And we make sure that students who are either, you know, looking to go to college where they can, you know what I mean? We we can give them a smaller, small scholarship, depending on how many funds, I mean, you know, how much of the funds we raise, we're able to do that. If you don't have the basic necessities, you can't focus. That's so true. You know what I mean? So even with book bags and all that kind of stuff, we just make sure that they have that. You know, we make blankets and we teach the kids how to make blankets so that, one, they're warm. You know what I mean? And so when children were in the, they're in the shelter, they don't hardly really have items for themselves. So we, you know, did the blanket ministry in her honor. And so just, just being able to give back simply and to exercise. And I think that for me, that's always, her giving me assignment. I feel like I work for, I volunteer for Sherelda's foundation to be able to give back to others. And that's what, honestly, it keeps my heart pure. And helping her carry out her life goals. Mm-hmm. And what's one message that you want to give our listeners that are faced with challenges that they can't get out of bed from? You know what? The one message that I just like to say is that, you know, you can make it through this. You know, you're going to make it. And, you know, endurance is something that when you endure through something, you never, you know, when you say get out of the bed, it's like getting up, putting my feet on the floor is gratitude for me. But, you know, to to tell somebody, as I said, you can make it through this, making it through it sometimes means to go help somebody else. You know, people who have been through stuff or grieving people need to be people that work or volunteer to go love somebody else. That helps you to not focus on your own circumstances. 
by being able to give to another person. And what would you say to anybody that says, well, I just don't have that kind of strength. Like maybe you were born with yours, but I don't have mine. You don't know until you try. That's true. You don't know what you have until you are absolutely faced with the adversity. That's true. And I always say, listen, you have one chance at this life. And if you're still here and if you're able to wake up, then the next step is to get out of bed. If you're able to get out of bed, the next step is to put one foot in front of the other. What happens after that is your choice. I mean, I tell people, you know, you you may not feel like getting out of bed, but it didn't stop your fingers from dialing the phone. You could call somebody in a hospital and just pray, pray for them. You could love them. If you're an artist, you can uh, teach. You know what I mean? You It's so many aspects of giving that I think that people have to enlarge their mind and territory of how so. Right. Belinda, you are one of the most beautiful women I've ever met in my entire life. And the reason I say that is because to me, what's so beautiful is the way in which you have taken the circumstances of your life. And I know we've only covered one one hundredth of it right now, you know, in this in this episode. Mm. But, you know, you've taken circumstances in your life and you've found a way to process them through to the point where you found a perspective that worked for you to move forward with. And that perspective was whatever you could do to not become the evil that you've seen in the world and mm. whatever you can do to do the opposite and actually push love forward for yourself and for everyone around you. And it is so inspirational because you took the time to do that and you took the time to find those paths. And in doing mm. so, you were able to make a life for yourself that's fulfilling and for those around you that's fulfilling and really be an example of what it looks like when you live a life of quality. And when you take mm. the circumstances of your life and you find ways to overcome them and accept them and uh, and then and then still be able to fight for what you think, you know, what what, what you want to be mm. your legacy. And I commend you yeah, for I that. Never. I'm inspired by that and I'm grateful for you. And I never look at it like that because for me, when you live through it, you kind of just have blase moments just like everybody else. You know what I mean? Like I do. you just never look at it like that. You just you know, it's like you're you're forever still on the track and journey of trying. Well, stand tall, my friend, because not only did you change my life in such a positive way, I know that there's so many other people's lives that you have lifted, and that makes you a hero. Girl, I love you back, because let me say this. You're giving people an opportunity to put a voice to what they've experienced. Absolutely. Well, thank you for breathing life into us today by sharing your perspective. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so honored and humbled at the same time. Likewise. Belinda's ability to forgive a monster will never, and I mean never, cease to amaze me. And the thing is, she truly forgave him. Not because it was in her Bible or ingrained in her as a child, or even because she's naturally compassionate. Belinda forgave because she knew that hating him would only make her weaker, tear her down, and drain her life of meaning. She knew she couldn't survive living that way. She knew that nothing could bring her daughter back, so she made a choice that would still bring life. She forgave. That kind of acceptance is rare. That's more than loving compassion. That's survival. That's wisdom. That's her fire inside. 
So my final question is this. What are you holding on to that forgiveness could set free? Let's keep the conversation going. Follow us on socials at Fire Inside Show. Until next time. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Fire Inside, hosted by me, Sarada. Today's episode was produced by Andrea Johnson, edited by Chris Stout, music by Jim Gaynor, and mixed and mastered by Martin Stebbing. That's the dream team. And if you like what you've heard, be sure to leave a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode.